Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, poet laureate and biographer Iris Jamal Dunkel talks about her book, Charmian Kittredge London, Trailblazer, Author, Adventurer, published by University of Oklahoma Press in 2020. We recorded our interview on October 19th of this year. Who is Charmian Kittredge London? Charmian Kittredge London was a fascinating woman, and she's a woman that had really been forgotten in many ways from history, even though she was married to one of the most famous authors, Jack London. And um, in the time of her life, she was a celebrity. She would give talks to 25,000 people. And for some reason, history did not remember her. What are some of the reasons that you think history has forgotten Charmian Kittredge London? Well, one of the main reasons, I think, is because Charmian did not adhere to gender norms. You know, when you think about what a early 1900 woman was like, it's not somebody who rode astride and dared to, you know, be her own woman, traveled the world, wore pants, and didn't follow the rules. What happened was because she didn't follow the rules, many of the people who wrote down the history, which oftentimes were men, didn't include her. She had a really non-traditional childhood. Her mom was a writer. And when her mother died before she was even six years old, she was living with her father who ran a hotel. And her aunts were horrified by this. And one of her aunts took her in and raised her in sort of a, not a fire and brimstone house, but a very rules-oriented house. So how do you think that this non-traditional upbringing influenced her life and career? I think it's really interesting if you really think about her early upbringing. Yes, she was I mean, she was struck by tragedy, losing her mother before she was six, being shipped off to her aunt's house in Oakland, and living under the thumb of Aunt Nanetta, who was like, we are eating this way, we are doing this, these are the rules, and you have to follow them. Meanwhile, she also had an open marriage, and so she didn't follow those rules. So she really grew up in this household that was very strict, yet non-traditional at the same time. And Charmian really identified with her father the most. And her father was really an entrepreneur. He had come out from Maine during the gold rush, very charismatic man, and ended up in Utah where he met her mother. And he just started hotels up and down the state, started all these business projects, always looking for a new a new thing. And that kind of curiosity and drive and willingness to take risks was something she inherited from him. And that was something that her aunt could not understand about her. <laughs> um, in the beginning of the book, you talk about going on a field trip to Jack London's home when you were young, and this influenced your life. This is your first biography. Why did you choose to write this book? That's a great question. I grew up in Sonoma County, where Jack London State Park actually is. And so one of the field trips we go on, you know, growing up here is to Jack London State Park. And when I went there, 
I didn't know that you could be a writer. Like, I didn't know that was a job you could have. I was like, oh, thank God. That's all I know how to do. And so um, when I encountered Jack London's life, I was like, sign me up. I want to be a writer. But in the museums, there was very little of Charmian's story told, even though the House of Happy Walls, which contained the museum, the house named the House of Happy Walls, was her home for many decades. I'm a poet as well and a Jacqueline and scholar. And so when I was doing research on a book of poems I was writing, um, which later came out as Westfire Archive, where I was researching archival documents of Charmian, I discovered that she had actually taken this photograph of Jack London. It's one of the most famous photographs of him. He's on a hillside in Sonoma on horseback. And when I saw it, I was writing this book on the poetry of Sonoma Valley. And I discovered that one of Charmian's friends, Nell Griffith Wilson, had asked her for pieces for her own book. And in that book, there was this photograph and it was attributed to Charmian Kittredge London. And I was like, that's weird. I never knew she took that photograph. So I immediately went to all the Jack London scholars around me and was like, hey, did you guys know that Charmian took this picture? And they were like, huh, we never really thought to ask that question. And that answer was like, oh my God, like what else have we not found out because we haven't thought to ask that question about Charmian's life. And so from that day on, I was like, I can't just write a book of poems about Charmian. I have to write a biography. And then I'm like, how do you write a biography? <laughs> how long were they married? Well, they were together <laughs> a long time. They were married in 1905 and Jack London died in 1916. So 11 years that they were married. Um, they met in 1900 and then they started being romantically together in 1902. I find it interesting that Jack London died in her arms, and yet she's sort of been written out of his legacy. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you think that is? Well, that is really kind of the point where I start my biography, because it seemed so odd that that had happened. And so I really investigated that. And it was the chapter of the biography I had to write like 50 times because I was so angry with what I was finding. What happened was that as Charmian got older, she was in a horse accident. She was a, an amazing equestrian and she was riding a horse on the hillside and the horse shied and then bucked her off and then rolled over on top of her. And she was a small woman. She was five foot tall and crushed her. She thought she was going to die. Um, all the newspapers had the headlines that she was going to die. And so she was had to recover for many, many months on her own. And the kind of youthful vigor that she had was just really kind of taken out of her. And so she realized while she was mending in, um, she was actually in the old cottage where Jack Lennon had died, where they lived when he passed away. She was in the same place and really thinking about that death and thinking about what she had to do before she died. And one of those things she wanted to do was to have a biographer really kind of cement Jack's legacy. And so a few weeks later, after she's recovered, this young biographer named Irving Stone shows up at the House of Happy Walls and just fawned over her. And she's 60 and he's in his 30s. But this wasn't unusual for Charmian, who was a really attractive woman, to have men kind of fawning over her, especially she's a celebrity. And so he just keeps trying to seduce her. And finally, he comes out with the fact that he wants to write a biography about Jack. And then actually says, well, actually, I want to write a biography about you and Jack. And will you help me? 
And she's like, oh, of course, what a wonderful idea. And she gets totally, you know, snowballed into this idea. Um, he takes her dancing. He gets her out of the, you know, she's really isolated up in Glen Ellen away from the city. There's no train anymore. She can't drive an automobile. And so he makes her feel alive again. And what happens is through this seduction, he gets her to sign away all of her legal rights to the actual biography that he's writing. And so she has no legal ability to stop him, but she doesn't know that she's signed everything away. And so once he does come to the ranch and starts researching, starts going into her personal files, like her diaries from before 1900, their love letters, things that she wanted to keep to herself and interviewing people aggressively around him and tells the story that really maligns her that makes her look like she hindered her husband's career more than helped it when that happens she has nothing she can do so what she does is she burns her documents and she makes it so that nobody can get into her archives at the huntington library for decades and because of that the story that he told which was completely it's called a fictional biography because it is fictional a great you know big chunks of it because of that no one could correct the story until Clary Stas is a biographer who had worked on her before me. And then I got access to the most documentation. And that's why I was able to bring her story back. But that's why it was so heartbreaking to watch that happen. You know, reading these letters from Irving Stone, you're just like, oh, stop it. <laughs> so when you say you had the most access so far of her biographers, what access were you granted that others were not? What happened is that the heir of Jack's sister, half-sister Eliza Milo Shepard, who owned the rights to all of the documents, died. And so that opened the archives up. And I also was given access. Even the things that he had kept, like, you know, documents that were kept on the site were now into the archives, more of them. There's still more to be found, but the Jack Lennon story is quite a complicated story, as anyone who's tried to write a story about either of these people knows, because they did a lot of marketing of themselves, which was filled with a lot of propaganda. Um, so to see through that was really difficult. But the way that I was able to tell the story was by going through the lens, just like when I saw that photograph and found out that she had taken that picture and no one had thought to look behind the camera, like who was taking that picture. That's the way I tried to look at Jack London's life. And their life together is through her perspective, which had never really been done before. Everything was through the famous husband's perspective. And it completely changed the story and what came out in the end. And plus, it, there was so much of her life she lived after Jack died in 1916. She lived to 1955. So there was so much more material. I could have written two biographies, you know, two volumes of it based on it. I found it fascinating that before she met Jack London and then after he died, she had a lot of high profile relationships, including one with Harry Houdini, the magician. What were some of the more interesting or some salacious details that you don't include in this biography that you learned in the archives? Let's just say that Charmian and Jack had a very rich sexual life and she recorded all the details in her diary. She actually used this um, this term lolly to signify whenever they had sex and there was like a double lolly. There's all these different lollies that are throughout her diaries. You know, she never meant for anyone to read those diaries. Um, and also, she was a very sensual woman. Like, she was raised in a house where 
women were able to explore their own sexuality and to be in touch with that. And that was from our perspective in the modern world that seemed rare during that time period. It wasn't as rare as we think it was. But what that meant is that, of course, after her husband died several years later, she's probably going to meet, you know, some men and have relationships, right? That's not unheard of if you live past your husband. When it comes to Houdini, I think it's important to bring this up because there are many biographies about Houdini that get it wrong because they're not looking through the same perspective. And that's nothing against biographers who write about Houdini. But when you're looking through the woman's perspective, it's a different point of view. And so during Jack's life, they met the Houdinis. So Houdini was married to Bess and in Oakland, he gave a show and Jack was like, this is so amazing. And he went to like a bunch of shows, was called on stage, right? And they ended up having Thanksgiving dinner together at Saddle Rock, their favorite restaurant. And they all became very close. Then when Jack died, Houdini sent this letter just to, you know, send her condolences. And um, a few years later, she was going to New York City to talk to Brett, who was the Macmillan publisher that Jack worked with during his lifetime and who Charmian was working with getting all of his publications. You know, she did a lot of work to get all of his work out there. She was working with Brett and also the idea of writing a biography about Jack had come up. And so they were going to talk about that project. She goes to New York and tells Houdini about it. And he immediately sends her tickets to his show at the Hippodrome. And he's like, you have to come. And she does. And she's in the front row. She's wearing all white, right? She's very fashionable. And afterwards, she goes back to the dressing room and they hit it off. And she goes out to dinner with him and his wife. But then Houdini starts to pursue her. And she's like, well, okay, you know. And so they end up dating while she's in New York for several weeks. And meeting up. And um, she does in her diary call him her magic lover. And, you know, there's these very quotable moments like that. But at the same time, she's also like still having nightmares about Jack and still like getting Jack's biography together of getting his works published. She's still in love with Jack, but he's dead. And so she's moving on. But Houdini is obviously a showman, right? He likes to be on stage. He likes to, you know, be the center of attention. And Charmian had had a lot of that with Jack. And frankly, after he died, she felt like she was really of two minds. Like she was really sad that she lost her husband, but she was also freed to actually have her creative life again. I mean, she was a writer before she met Jack and she was a writer after she met Jack. And I think being able to be freed into that lifestyle again was really what she wanted. And so when Houdini was like, I love you so much, you know, she was like, you know, this isn't going to work out. And so she left him and went back to California. So it was only a few weeks that they were together. And, you know, he did keep contacting her and pursuing her, but it never amounted to a lot because she wasn't getting what she wanted out of it. This book reads closely like a diary, looking into the inner workings of Charmian. After the Irving Stone debacle, where he skewered her reputation, she burns some of her diaries and she closes up her personal papers for decades. And yet this book has so many details. So how were you able to fill in some of those holes that were destroyed? Great question. And it was a labor of love. 
honestly. I mean, there are wonderful collections available at the Huntington Library, and I spent a great deal of time there. There's um, Utah State actually has an amazing amount of her later, you know, she she downloaded a lot of her later documents there and her whole library of books that were signed to her by Jack London. A lot of private people love to collect Jack London paraphernalia. And so I had to hunt people down to like look at their personal archives and they were so wonderful to let me. And then a lot of sleuthing, like I'm lucky to live in the Bay Area so I could look into the public records and find actual archival documents. I mean, as you probably know from interviewing people that write about women or people who have been erased by history, it's not a traditional format that you would follow. And biography really becomes much of a revolution. You know, you're, you're fighting back against history. You're trying to find a way to recreate the story so that it's more representative. Because of the work that I did, finding those nooks and crannies and all of this incredible information about her, and there's more to be found. Like that was my first biography. I mean, I'd love to go at it now, right? But the idea that the work that I did, I was able to give to Jacqueline and State Park and that they used that to remodel the House of Happy Walls and to make the museum exhibit more representative of Charmian's story was like, oh my God, like think of me on a sixth grade field trip, you know, like a sixth grader from my town goes back there. Now they see a woman writer. They see a woman who has a story. And like, for me, that means everything. To what extent did you trace Jack and Charmian's travels? Oh, well, I wish I could say I went on a tour around the Pacific Islands, but I did not get that opportunity. I did not get enough funding, but I was able to follow through all their archival material, some of the amazing adventures they went on. And it was just spectacular. One of the most amazing parts of their story that wasn't told as much was their trip around Cape Horn. So they got on the Dirigo, which was a one of those three-masted ships. And this is like past the time of big sailing ships, right? That's not how you're transporting cargo anymore. But Charmian and Jack loved old technology. And they were like, let's figure out how we can get on this trip. They paid to be part of the crew and went from Baltimore around Cape Horn to Seattle on the sailing ship. And um, it was on that trip that they wrote The Valley of the Moon, and they had been researching it for several years together. And it's on that trip they were able to do it. It was really when they, where they were at sea that they became this like collaborative writing couple that was really spectacular. It was like the moment when they could be most themselves. Because as celebrities, you know, and as Jack London, who loved the drink and loved the ladies, he was most focused when they were at sea and able to work on their, their writing projects together. It sounded like a harrowing trip, too. Yes. I mean... The captain of the ship became sick halfway through the journey, like right when they hit Cape Horn, which I learned so much about Cape Horn and how it's like this li these little tiny islands that you have to like thread through in these big ships. And he had stomach cancer and he ended up dying as soon as they got to port in Seattle. Part of what attracted me to this project was reading the diaries of the Dirigo, which is a book that's never been published that she wrote. And it chronicles this trip. And it kind of brings in the rhyme of the ancient mariner because they're catching albatross the whole time. Which was a sign of bad luck. It's such a sign of bad luck. And she knows this because as soon as she writes this into it afterwards, because once they get back, you know, she miscarries a baby, their dream home burns to the ground, the wolf house, and then Jack dies a few years later. I mean, it's this 
terrible progression of events. And she's trying to make sense of it in her diaries. But that writing was just, it's so incredible. And it's at the same time that one of the one things that I found out when I was doing research for this book was that Charmian helped write some of Jack's books. And that had never been acknowledged before. And because of my research and the research of scholars that were, you know, around me, um, you know, when I brought this to their attention, now we know that she wrote huge passages in the Valley of the Moon. And it makes sense, right? But during that time period, she thought of herself as part of the Jack London team, right? She didn't think that she needed her own authorship as part of that, that he really depended on her for large parts of that book and some books afterwards as well. And that became painfully clear throughout this biography that she was a co-writer of his. You know, there have been so many books written about Jack London, and not one of them has ever mentioned that. In the process of researching and writing this biography, were you in touch with any living relatives of the couple? So, yes. Uh, I mean, that's a complicated answer because they did not have any children that survived because Charmian had a very difficult birth experience with their daughter, Joy, who only lived uh, for three days and then sadly passed away and she never actually got to hold her or see her. And due to the complications of that birth, she was unable to carry a child to term, even though she didn't know that. So she kept having miscarriages after that. You know, she didn't have, she was an only child and she didn't have any children. And so it was more through Jack's family that I found relatives and I did talk to them. And because the story about Jack Lennon is is varied. <laughs> there are a lot of camps and ideas and feelings about Charmian. You were the poet laureate for Sonoma County from 2017 to 2018. How has your poetry career influenced the writing of this book? I am a multi-genre writer. I am somebody that I write poetry first, and um, I also write prose. And I started writing a poetry book. That's how I started this project. And it just became the fact that, I mean, let's be honest, how many people are going to read a book of poems? You know, maybe 3,000 if you're really lucky. But if you write a biography, you can reach a wider audience. And so for me, I realized that once I got through the process of writing poetically about Charmian, I realized I have to write a bigger book about this. And that's when the biography started. And this is happening again with my new project. I'm writing a biography about the writer Sonora Babb, an amazing woman who wrote about the Dust Bowl in a book called Whose Names Are Unknown. And the project really uh, began with the work of an erasure project. So my family came over in the Dust Bowl from Oklahoma. When I was in high school, I read The Grapes of Wrath and I ran to my grandmother and I'm like, grandmother, you won't believe this. They wrote a book about our people. And she was like, that book is terrible. And she wouldn't even talk to me about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's just grumpy. I can't believe she doesn't appreciate this. It's John Steinbeck. And then, you know, later in life, I started researching the actual book and where it was set. It's not set in the county where there was a dust bowl. There's so many holes in the story and the way that the, the people are depicted was offensive to my grandmother. And I started to understand that. And then I read Sonora Babb's book, Whose Names Are Unknown, that was actually set first in eastern Colorado, where the dust will happen. And you get to know the people before this horrible, the worst day of their lives happens, right? And as somebody who has survived some serious catastrophes here in Sonoma County, you know, we've had some serious wildfires, serious floods, you know, we have earthquakes. I mean, 
we've got a lot of catastrophe here. And I know that the people whose house burned down in 2017, you know, were my friends. I knew that they weren't defined by that awful day, right? They were defined by everything that came before it. And so when I was able to contextualize that, I started rereading The Grapes of Wrath. You know, I was starting to write this biography about Sonora Bab and, you know, like doing my research. And all of a sudden, my grandmother's voice kept coming back to me, like speaking to me. And I was like, I got to start writing a poem project. And so I was getting on a plane to go to University of Oklahoma to give a reading. And I went to the gift shop. I grabbed The Grapes of Wrath. I grabbed a packet of pens. I just got on a plane and I started erasing the grapes of wrath and finding poems within the words and phrases within it. And so at the same time that I'm writing my biography, once again, I'm processing the emotion, I'm processing, you know, the lyric story through writing poetry at the same time that I'm writing this biography about Sonora Bab. And it it's really just the only way I can do it. I know it's a little crazy, but it's the only way that I can write is through two genres. In terms of your research and writing process, what does that look like? As a writer, I need to be in the place that I'm writing about. And so I began by doing like big research, right? I go to wherever I can find lots of information about the person that I'm writing about. So in the case of Charmian, I went to the Huntington Library. I went to Jacqueline and State Historic Park and saw the archival items, like actually seeing her mother's corset you know, that she kept with her all her life, things like that. If I'm writing about the place where she lived, I have to be there. And so in Sonora Bab's case, I had to go to Eastern Colorado. Luckily, the place where the dugout or was where she lived, the people are really kind. And they drove me out to like the little spot on their farm where it was. And I could stand there and I could smell the air and I could see the sky and I could feel what the buffalo grass feels like underfoot. And I could write the scene then. And so as a writer, I need that sensory processing experience to make the scene. But I also need time in those archives to get the documents to tell that story. It's so much fun to see pictures, and you include quite a few images in this book. How did you decide which pictures to include? I'm sure you came across thousands because she was a photographer. Yeah, that was a really hard decision to make. I wish I could have had 100 photographs in there, as most biographers probably have to go through that process. But so much of her was erased. I was like, I really wanted to show her as a trailblazer, as an adventurer, and as a beautiful, sensuous woman. So that's how I made decisions. And also her active relationship with Jack London and what they did. So one of the last pictures is her at her desk, working on her last project that she never finished, which is the log of the deer ago. And when people looked at the House of Happy Walls, they didn't realize that she was a writer. They were like, oh, here's her closet. She had pretty clothes. No, that was her office, right? And all of her papers were on her desk with these pins, like, you know, like we do post-it notes, right? Things were pinned to it. When they archived her work, they took out all those pins and laid everything flat in the file. That was like a violence of the archive against her. And so for me to have a picture of what that was made me really like see her whole. That was Poet Laureate and biographer Iris Jamal Dunkel talking with bio member Jenny Skoog about her book, Charmian Kittredge London, Trailblazer, Author, Adventurer. It was published by University of Oklahoma Press in September 2020. This interview was recorded on October 19th of this year. 
To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.